0: And this evening, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. Our time in this blessed book, I hope it's been a blessing to you. It is God's word as a means of helping us know how we are to live in, at times, confusing times, at the best confusing times, at the worst, murderous and idolatrous times. We're going to stay in the wisdom literature this summer as I'll move through a series from the book of Psalms. I can think of no better way to shore ourselves up for an uncertain future than to endeavor to be wise. It is a great investment. And so that is my endeavor. Now, preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, I was remarking on this at lunch. I think um, Ecclesiastes often reads... Like a parent sitting down with a child, maybe before they go off to college and say, all right, here's some things you need to know. This is how you ought to think about the world in which you live. And the child's eyes grow ever wider, realizing, oh, man, I thought you were going to say something to encourage me. Now I'm just a little more unsure. Uh, Solomon's intention is not to make us unsure, but to be sure, not in the stuff of earth, but in the one who dwells upon the throne above the sky that is not under the sun, though he entered under the sun in order to redeem us. How are we to live as those redeemed people? I'll begin reading in verse 16 of chapter 10. Listen as I read. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness the building decays, and through idleness of hands the house leaks. A feast is made for laughing, and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, lead us to the truth and lead us to the rock that is higher than we, that we might come to worship and bow down and delight in your presence, for even tonight in these simple things you have words of life for us that we might go forth knowing how to behave, how to speak, and even more importantly, when not to say something. And so make us wise, not only in what we know, but how to talk and how to conduct ourselves even among the ungodly. We pray this in your name. Amen. This evening, I wanted to talk about this subject that we find in verses 16 through 20, and that is of the relationship between superiors and inferiors and inferiors and superiors. Uh, This is the language of our confession, and if you don't like that language, take it up with the men who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith 500 years ago, or not quite 500 years ago. It's helpful. Now, by superior and peers and inferiors, they do not mean ontologically, that there are those who are somehow uberman or superhuman, and those are the ruling class, even though at times the ruling class feels that way. Superior and inferior refers to the relationship that men and women and children have with one another based upon their function and role. Now, when we look at the spheres of authority and the spheres in which the law of God are to be applied, there are really four distinct spheres. There is the sphere of the self, you as an individual, as a personal entity, are called to submit to the law of God, and God has a lot to say about your life. He wants your heart, and he is jealous for it. There is the sphere of the family in which husbands and fathers rule, and along with their wives, they lead their families in godliness. Then there is the church, and in that same type of way, men are called to be officers, elders, and deacons, in order to rule the church well and lead the saints in godliness. And then there is the state or the nation, the body politic, and they are to be governed also according to the law of God. The law of God touches everything and ought to be applied in every way so that those who are in each of those bodies... In each of those spheres, be it an individual or corporate, which just means public, that they may be taught how to fear God and keep His commandments. Now, all that being said, we live in a world, as Solomon has already said, that is not only afflicted by creatureliness, we are under the sun, but we are a broken people. We are under the weight of sin and death. And so each of those spheres, has been corrupted. And that corruption is seen in our hearts. And because the individual is corrupted, everything they touch, think handling raw chicken in the kitchen, and instead of washing your hands, you just start touching everything. I can see some of you going, it just spreads the bacteria everywhere. The problem with Washington is that it's full of people. The problem with the church is that it's full of people. The problem with the home is that husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, even as they endeavor to lead, do not do so perfectly, but with feet of clay. And it seems perhaps in your own life, you take one step forward, man, I'm I'm really doing a good job mortifying this sin. And then you look around and go, oh, there's an unswept corner in my heart that I need to take care of. We're going to be afflicted by sin. And so Solomon is not writing Ecclesiastes into an ideal world. He's writing a book so that we know how to live in this exact world. This world. Not just the ancient world, but all the ages of men. And so what does he say about rulers and what does he say about subjects? What does he say about the rich and what does he have to say about the poor? Two things. Number one, Rulers matter. Not rules. Rulers matter. And then secondly, cursing the king. Cursing the king. Let's look at the first point. Rulers matter. Now the reason that they matter is because the word of God says they matter. But we don't even need to read that in the Bible, do we? If you've made your first paycheck and you see in those other tabs to the right of the money you would have made if it were not for the other columns, you realize rulers matter. Where, where's all this money going? I'm 42. I don't know either. Where is it going? Well, it's not going into my bank account. It's going to this massive dispersal fund to be taken care of by others besides myself. I think someone said in the congregational meeting, I'd rather be in charge of that $100 a month than giving it to someone else. That sentiment, I think, could be shared, is shared by all of us in this room. And because rulers matter, the character and the conduct and the laws in which they impose upon their people matter. And look at verse 16 Woe to you, O land! Woe to you body politic, woe to you citizens, woe to you sheep, woe to your children when your king is a child. Now Solomon is not talking merely about age. Josiah was a pretty good young king. What he means is immature, petulant, childish. It's a good thing we don't have rulers like that. Otherwise, we'd be in big trouble. (laughs) No. And where do these childlike, immature, childish rulers come from? Well, in our nation, they're voted in by other children. Childish people bring childish people into office. Now, in a nation, sometimes you cannot help it. But the way in which a king is seen to be a child is that he does not know when his bedtime is and he does not know what to eat for breakfast. And woe to you princes who feast in the morning. Now, you've heard it said, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So what's wrong with that? Well, it actually clarifies a little later on in verse 17. Those princes who eat at the proper time and not for drunkenness. A bad ruler is someone with no self-control, who is immature, who has never grown up. And the mark of childish rulers is that they enforce childish laws, laws that encourage the same kind of childishness among their subjects, the same kind of lack of self-control, the same kind of drunkenness and disorderliness. Laws that do not reflect the character and order and decency of God as king of heaven and earth, but those laws that entice the flesh and promote not discipline and strength, but idleness. I want you to think of one law in particular or one social institution that we have to endure in this country, and that is the social construct of the welfare system. Children, the welfare system is this all allowance, no work. All allowance, no work. That is a terrible way to govern a people. It comes from bad rulers. Now, they may have good intentions, but their intentions are shaped by their own childish, prideful, drunkenness, gluttonous ends. I'm thinking of the judge of Israel who walked into the chamber of that obese king who is a picture of the pagan land so obese, so fat, that when he went in to slay the king, the blade got lost in his gut. A caricature of the pagan nation that sought to rule over and was ruling over and persecuting. Israel, And in that assassination, there is this incredible foil between the righteousness of God and the wickedness of the nations. Those are bad rulers. And they are a curse. Because water flows downhill. And then in the same way, but opposite side of the spectrum... In terms of the trickle down, we are blessed to have good rulers. In the same way that bad or wicked rulers are a curse for those bodies over whom they rule, so good rulers bless, breathe life, and point others to holiness, whether it's fathers or kings or pastors or elders or presidents. Whoever fills the halls of power, it is better to have good rulers. Blessed are you, O land. When your king is the son of nobles and your princes eat at the right time for strength, they're not gluttons and they come from good stock. Now, when, I, when, when Solomon says good stock, he doesn't mean just rich, spoiled brats. Of course, that's not what he means. When he uses the word noble, he doesn't mean landed gentry. What he is talking about is character. Parents, as your children get older and they're looking for a spouse, as you are looking and helping them, one of the things you look at is what kind of parents does that kid have? What are their parents like? Have they learned in their home how to behave? And you can learn a lot about a kid by their parents. In some sense, what Solomon is talking about is someone who is covenantally well-raised. He is a God-fearer. That is what makes a man noble. And because he is a God-fearer, he knows why and how to consume the stuff of earth. Now, what Paul does later in the pastoral epistles is he says pastors ought not to be given to lust and to drunkenness and gluttony. Why? Why is that? It is because they are an example to the people how to behave. And one of the primary examples that encourages Christians to push forward in the face of danger of just malaise, of apathy, is self-control. Whether it's portion control, or sexual control, or financial control, all of that control is not a legalistic tightening of the fists, but it is understanding that all the gifts that you have been given come from God, and they are to be as stewards of God's earth used for his glory. A good ruler knows that God put him in that place. And so what he does is he seeks to honor God and bless the people. And the results of wickedness and goodness are seen next. Verse 18, the effect of bad rulers, and verse 19, the effect of good rulers. 18, because of their laziness the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. Here is a very clear present example of a decaying building. Inflation. Inflation is a hallmark of bad leadership. We're not just talking about buildings. Think of your own home. A husband or a father an owner of a home, is also made or revealed to be a bad ruler when he lets his house fall apart. When he doesn't do or have someone do the carpentry or the repair work that is necessary. Solomon is talking about the stuff of earth. Not just our souls, but the stuff of earth. Children, do you know the Parable of the grasshopper and the ant? Or that old bluegrass song about the boy that wouldn't hoe corn? It's the same principle. The grasshopper loved to play and play and play while the ants stored and labored and labored and they stored food. But when the winter came and the nice summer months were over, the grasshopper starved to death and froze to death while the ants grew fat and happy in their anthill. Or the boy that wouldn't hoe corn refused to get out in the field and come the end of harvest, he had nothing to eat and he died. It's interesting all of these parables usually end in someone dying and embarrassed and ashamed. Bad rulers lead to decay, to the decay of structures, to the decay of moral norms, and through idleness of hands the house leaks Is this the kind of home you want to live in? Right now, as we seek to build a parking lot, what we're endeavoring to do, when we talked about building this road, we could have said, you know what, let's save the $20,000. That's not our responsibility. But what could we do instead? We can pave this road, make it six inches deep, so that even if a big truck does come down this road, they won't crack it. Why? Because we endeavor to be a church with a good testimony. And not just a good testimony, as though to over spiritualize Christian faithfulness. I want a good road. Because when that road collapses, the sewer collapses. And guess what happens to the toilet that's in the basement? It's it very active, it's a problem. And we live oftentimes among a lot of Christians that so over-spiritualize the instructions and the law of Scripture that it all boils down to good testimony this, good testimony that. Well, what is the good testimony? It is a life well-lived of responsibility and resourcefulness so that we can say whatever we put our hand to, we want to make sure that Christ can put his name on it and he is proud of it. It's because of laziness that the building decays. Evil men are lazy men. And then look at verse 19. A feast is made for laughter, and a wine makes merry, but money answers everything. It's good to rejoice. It's good to have fun. The princes here are not bad because they like wine. The princes are bad because they like wine for breakfast. And they like wine for breakfast because they want to go through life in a stupor because they can't control themselves. And so, why the world drinks and makes merry in excess, do you know what the Christian is doing? We are investing, we are laboring. We are the ants, they are the grasshopper. Now, Solomon doesn't say celebration is bad. But money is better than rejoicing. How do I know that? Because I know that if we throw a party, it's not going to fix the parking lot. But if we go to other saints and say, we have a responsibility to care for, Kellen is right out the door. He wants to come in. (laughs) We want to fix the problem. How do we do that? Well, here Solomon says money. Now, if some of you had an asphalt truck, it's as good as money, right? He's talking about resources that are adaptable in order to bless the body. Money answers everything. Some of you teenagers, if you've gotten your first, second, or third job, you realize when that car insurance bill comes around, if you went out to eat too much... And you spend all your money on clothes and food, you don't get to drive anymore. Feasts are made for laughter, wine makes merry, but used hamburger wrappers don't pay the rent. Do you see what Solomon is getting to? We must think in cold, hard, day to day terms about how wisdom expresses itself in our lives. Stimulus check is sweet, but the debt our children will be saddled with is not so sweet. All of this matters, Solomon says. It matters, which is why the next verse is so important. It is precisely because it matters that our conduct is so important and we must exercise wisdom and discretion with great self-control. It is very bad if you have a a leader with no self-control. It is good when you have a a leader with self-control. It is very bad if you have citizens without self-control. And what is that primary instrument that Christ would have us control that James says, it's kind of tough. In fact, what he actually says is, you can tame wild pit bulls that show up Moments before you gather for worship, but you can't tame this little muscle, the tongue. It's hard. Now, the kingdom of Christ is inherently political. Now, what I'm not trying to do now is to ruin our tax-exempt status. What I'm trying to say is this. You cannot escape politics. That is, engaging in or being engaged upon by those who wield positions of power, authority, responsibility on behalf of others. And when you say Christ is king, what else are you saying? That all the kings of earth and all the mighty men of earth are not king. Or they are kings under Christ. There is no escaping that the Christian mantra, Christ is Lord, is inherently, inescapably political. It's political in the family. It's political in the church. It's political in the state. Because it calls men to ally themselves, not with the stuff or men of earth, but the one who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth. And there are times when it costs you. Christ says, I came to divide father from son, mother from daughter. To confess Christ in a Muslim nation is not only to experience the threat of death, but to be shunned by your entire family for the rest of your life. It's costly. Obedience is costly. And that's because Christ wants all of it. He calls you to make him Lord of his life. And so you must therefore know how to behave in an inescapable politic or political system. Especially when it's hashtag not my president. Right? When there's someone in office that you despise. When there's someone in office that you A, didn't vote for and thinks is wrecking the nation. And I think you could probably, in any age of the church, even in this country, say that. And if you live long enough, you go, amen. Now, we have seen how good rulers are a blessing. We have seen how bad rulers are a curse. So, too, bad subjects. Just as a house cannot be properly kept if the owners do not tend it well, so, too, the house will fall into disrepair if all of the residents are not determined to care faithfully for it. You need good leaders, but you need good subjects. And as those who are under authority, who are inferiors to those whom God has put over us, whom we may have put over us either with our vote or not, but are there nonetheless, we err in two ways. Either we are doormats or we are rebels. Either we say it doesn't matter, Solomon says it does, or we say, because it matters, I have an excuse to misbehave in public or in private. But both are a failure to behave and comport ourselves with Christ-like dignity. And so here, Solomon gives instructions to those who are inferiors to someone, whether they're children or citizens or members of the church. And it is given as an exhortation with a warning Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. Now, what Solomon is not saying is when you're sitting around a table and you are assessing the quality of one's leadership, you may do so by holding it up to the scriptures, but what you are not allowed to do is curse. We are in covenant with one another, not just with the Lord. We are in covenant with those who are in authority over us. And it is not our responsibility to covenantally curse those whom God has put over us. Either as a blessing of faithfulness or as a curse of judgment. Do you know what a curse is? I'm not referring to curse words or taking the Lord's name in vain. It is equivalent to saying, damn you. That's a curse. I remember years ago I had a friend uh, in university and he was riding an elevator with a very large football player. This young man was probably my size. He is my size. I knew him well. And while they're on the elevator, uh, there were these two players. One of them was, was speaking and he began to pour forth many expletives about one of the coaches. And while he was doing that, he said, GD him. And my friend looks at him. How dare you? How dare you call down the wrath of God on another person? You have no idea what you're asking for. (laughs) He was stunned. He didn't say anything else. This is the kind of language, not just that severe and wretched of cursing, but the Christian can often, in a a sort of pious revolt, speak ill in a manner that goes beyond our responsibility about those who are in authority over us. Don't do it even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. And what is the motivation in the heart behind cursing? If you curse a rich person, why is it? Because you covet their wealth. You can't stand that they have something that you don't want or you're not happy in the way they got it. But oftentimes those cursings that draw from a, a dark heart of jealousy and impatience Are spoken even in our hearts and in our bedrooms or in private company or even in public. Why? Because we think about power and wealth the way that the world does, not the way that Christ does. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor in heart. Wealth is not the problem. It's that when we think wealth and power solve those problems and that we cannot overcome injustice and unrighteousness with righteousness and the mechanism that God has given to us as Christians to take over the world. And it doesn't begin in our bedrooms and it doesn't begin in our hearts. It begins in the household of God. Do you wish to take full control of the world? I do and not because i crave power because i think i could do better i know i could not do as well i i would be sitting in the situation room going i don't know i got no idea what to do can you imagine how many men have sat in that room going i am way out of my depth <laughs> and then he uses this somewhat whimsical warning A bird of the air might carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Have you ever spoken of someone ill only to find out they weren't so far? (laughs) Parents, have you ever talked about your kids? Maybe it was a concern. Let's label it a concern. We're not gossiping, we're parents. We're concerned about you. And they hear it. And what does it do? Despite your best intentions, despite the fact that you are concerned for all the right reasons, what does it create? Resentment? Dismay? That is not the way the church fights. And in some ways, in God's providence, bad news always has a way of getting out. Did you hear from so-and-so? The fishbowl is always smaller than you think. Solomon is talking about gossip. He's talking about undermining even the Lord's own providence. Rather, we are not to curse, but in our thoughts and in our private places, what sort of speech ought to be filled or what sort of speech should fill the mouth and heart of the Christian? Prayer. And the proclamation of God's law. Because God's law alone is what curses. When the minister says repent, he is declaring God's approved warning against sin. I do not take it upon myself to curse you. I take the word of God and I say, this is what the word says And if you do not repent, this is the penalty. We are to bring all matters to the Lord in prayer, and we are to bring the word of God to bear on the hearts of men, lest we be hypocrites. Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven. Here, leaven is a bad thing. Of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. You've heard the phrase, loose lips sink ships. It's as true in the church as it is anywhere. A little bit of concern. Did you hear this about so-and-so? And then somehow, like wildfire, as James would say, that little word spreads and it destroys the whole forest. What Solomon is saying, in essence, is this. Wisdom knows how to plan, verses 16 through 19. And wisdom says, shh, quiet. Quiet. Sometimes you don't say anything. (laughs) Wow. That's a tough one. That's a tough one for me. If cursings carry, silence cuts it off. Do not curse, but rather call men to repentance. Call men to allegiance to the great king of heaven and earth. If you were to sit down, if someone said, you know, we need you to come to the White House, We need counsel. What would you say? I'm just here to tell you, get out. No, you would, I hope, plan and take the opportunity to look at all of the things that are out of alignment with the will of God and say, here are the things that we need to do. Here is how we get better. Here is how we follow God's law more closely. I want you to look at Daniel, I want you to look at Job, and I want you to look at Joseph. You know what those men never did? You know what they never said? Kids, huh? (laughs) They did what? They were faithful and they shut their mouth until it was time to declare the excellencies of God when he, Daniel, was told, do not pray to God. he quietly went to his second story opened the door and said, I got something to say about you, king. No, he did what? He got on his knees and prayed. And God solved the problem. Because the men who sought to throw Daniel into the lion's den were fed to the lions. You must stand upon this principle. The wicked will fall upon their own sword. Be faithful. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I. Got